Welcome to S2 Underground, a freelance intelligence agency fighting terrorism, fake news, and political tyranny around the world. I'm the trouble star, punkin' instigator. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Underground. So today we are going to launch a new series called Question Time. Uh, we are going to take your questions that we get in our DMs throughout the week and have a short little podcast on them and answer them as best we can in sort of a long-form format. As most people know by now, uh, usually the questions that we get asked don't really have a simple answer, which is awesome. Uh, but it also means that it's very difficult to respond to a lot of the questions that we get on you know, social media in a very short uh, manner. So we wanted to create another series to see if we can address that. And since it's pretty easy for us to do, we don't really need any you know special research to, to uh, answer your questions. We thought we would start it this week, and of course we figured we would get most of the questions regarding the recent election or the election that's still going on. So we're going to start our first question off on that topic. So. Uh, the first question we have is, what sort of likelihood do we have of some sort of sanctioned or unsanctioned retaliation on Trump himself and those who may have supported him? So this is a good question and uh, one that is perfect for our classic format of you know what we know, what we don't know, and what we think. So what we know is that there are lots of claims on social media as uh, over the past 48 hours or so as more mainstream media have sort of called the election uh, there have been more uh, there's been an increased uh, increased rhetoric uh, of violence against really anyone who is not an extreme leftist um, which is interesting uh, we do know one specific agency, which is called the Trump Accountability Project, uh, has sort of sprung up from the internet ether sphere, and uh, they are trying to set up a database of uh, basically Trump supporters or anyone who's remotely conservative, and w for the purpose of uh, targeting them, uh, that's what they actually say. Um, they're going to uh, try to target these uh, Trump supporters or, or anyone who's not an extreme leftist in, in sort of uh, any way possible, either at physical violence or uh, trying to prevent them from getting employment through flagging their LinkedIn page or other social media or things like that. Basically, uh, doxing to the nth degree. So we do know that that is a genuine threat that's out there. Now, what we don't know is the severity of these threats. We feel fairly confident that some sort of entity, be it Antifa or BLM or whatever agencies out there that's an extreme, you know, sort of socialism-based agency, uh, we figure they're probably going to come up with some kind of database like this no matter what. So, But we don't know what the severity is of these threats. You know, Anyone can get on Twitter nowadays and make a threat and nothing happens to them. So it's hard to tell who's being a just a keyboard warrior and who is being uh, quite serious. So for trying to determine um, the likelihood of an attack, we're going to have to go based on our, our other uh, criteria that we have for judging other kinds of attacks, right? So what we think is going to happen is we're probably going to see retaliation. It might be physical, but it's far more likely to be social and economic, right? We're going to far, we're going to see, you know, boycotts of conservative businesses. We're going to see a lot more social stigmas being associated with anything that is 
um, essentially not an extreme left position. And one of the things that I can sort of bring a historical example to is the ancient Greek societies, you know, uh, the ancient Spartan societies specifically, uh, and how they treated the helots. Now, for those of you who haven't read your uh, ancient Greece uh, history uh, lately, the Helots were basically an enslaved population. Uh, one ancient writer, uh, Critias, uh, called them slaves to the utmost, and another um, another writer, uh, Pollux, called them uh, between free men and slaves. So they weren't quite um, permanent, you know, uh, uh, slaves that are you know chained down type thing, but they were uh, very much a a a substandard part of society. In fact, uh, one of the major criteria for uh, Spartan warrior progression and the, the career of a, the great Spartan warrior class, right, was to basically spend their uh, childhood beating up helots and uh, mistreating them in the streets and things like that. So imagine a population that could, you could just, you know, walk up to someone on the street and just start beating them, right? And you would be perfectly in, in, in the in the right for doing so. That's how the helots were treated in ancient Greece. Now, obviously, it's not going to be that, that severe. I don't think it would be appropriate to say that our culture would be similar in that respect. But I do think that maybe just a tiny little bit of that is going to happen. We're going to start seeing that the, the vogue thing to do would be to bash anyone who is um, extreme conservative or regular, conser- you know, centrist conservator or, or even centrist, you know, or even we might even see uh, people who are uh, liberal be targeted because they're not liberal enough. We know Antifa has done that in the past quite a lot. So uh, that's that's what we think is going to happen now, against Trump himself. Uh, we'll have to see, but it's going to be quite certain that he's going to have quite a large security team with him and his entire family is going to be taken care of. Um, so you can rest assured that the most likely victim of this will be the American people. So moving on to the next one, uh, do you think there is any chance of the UN, the United Nations, interfering with U.S. politics between now and inauguration? Um, Probably so, but not probably in the way that everyone thinks. Uh, the United Nations is almost certainly going to try to stick their nose into where, where it doesn't belong, but they're most likely not going to have any large-scale troop, de- troop deployments, mostly because the United Nations is a completely combat ineffective force. Uh, they, uh, as a sort of as a doctrine, you know, their peacekeeping efforts haven't really worked ever anywhere. Uh, we've seen in, in places um, in like sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to you know Al Qaeda and things like that, and even going back to the more the the uh, more famous uh, incidents of you know Black Hawk Down. Right, things haven't changed that much. Uh, United Nations peacekeepers will almost n- certainly not set foot on American soil, and if they did, they're in for a very large surprise because everyone, uh, of course, wants to show their hatred for the United Nations peacekeepers, but the fact of the matter is, is the United States military dr- drastically out uh, outnumbers them, even, you know, Pick any state in the Union, their National Guard is bigger than the United Nations peacekeeping force. So I don't think uh, the United Nations military actions are a huge concern. Now, they might try to put the screws to the United States in some other way, like economically, but I really don't think so because the United, the United States pretty much owns the United Nations. Uh, but that doesn't mean, of course, they won't try to poke and prod and, and, uh, and degrade America as much as they can get away with. Alright, so the next question is, what do we do now? I find it hard to compartmentalize between a, quote, real life and preparing for possible instability in the future. Any tips? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I completely understand. It is becoming very difficult to balance some semblance of normalcy on one hand and perhaps a, a very pessimistic and paranoid wor worldview on the other. But perhaps, actually, perhaps that's not the best way to put it. Um, it. It's hard to be normal and at the same time be prepared for the things that we need to be prepared for. Um, and we wholeheartedly agree with this. And I'm not certain that we found a perfect answer to this, but we'll give it a shot. Uh, what has worked for us is essentially comes down to more philosophical or, or mental things, right? Uh, you know, keeping core values, finding and starting productive hobbies that'll help you out later, you know, keeping yourself mentally healthy, right? Trying to figure out what your values are, you know, is very important. You know, every day we ourselves form new values and start to value certain things less and certain things more, right? Values change over time, not drastically, but they do sort of change. Um, like me personally, you know, personally, I value playing video games less than I used to. And instead, uh, in its place, I value spending time outdoors more. You know, now on the other hand, our uh, ops guy here who spent way more time outside than me uh, has found that playing video games every now and then is a huge stress reliever. So he values that time greatly now, right? So to sort of help with trying to balance the need for preparedness and the balance for uh, and the need for some kind of, you know, semblance of a normal life, uh, try to find out what you value. If you value being prepared for every possible eventuality, then I wouldn't necessarily necessarily worry about you know being quote unquote normal so much however if you value being normal more you know or having some kind of normal social type atmosphere then of course prioritize that you know there's no there's there's no reason that you cannot be prepared but also be a, a quote unquote rather normal you know lead a normal life right um, so yeah, find out what you like and find out what you value and just keep doing that, right? We can't help anyone if we're down for the count too. So, um, mental health is one of the very first steps to making sure that you're an asset and not a liability. All right, next question here. So, hey y'all, I love your stuff. I've been trying to get more prepared and I'm doing what I can on my own research and your recommendations. I'm active duty military living in the barracks. Oh, good grief. Uh, when stuff hits the fan, does it even matter if I'm prepared since the military will do with me what they want? Uh, so first off, uh, huge uh, condolences to living in the barracks. We all know how that is, and that is not fun. Um, but yes, the answer to your question is yes. It is most certainly true that the military is going to force you to do essentially what they're going to do with you, right? We, we're not under that illusion that that's not going to happen. Uh, however, you can be sort of micro-prepared, if that makes sense. Just kind of making that up on the spot here. So when people normally think of prepping, they think of stocking away months and months worth of food and things like that. And yes, that's... That's being prepared. It's not a bad thing to do. However, living in the barracks, we know that's impossible, right? We know that pretty much every facet of your life is going to be controlled. Now, that does not mean that you cannot also be prepared in some way. Uh, the whole, um, I would look, if you haven't already done so, look into the whole sort of EDC community, the everyday carry community. Uh, this is popped up on the internet. I'm sure everyone's probably heard of this by now, but it's sort of a, um, a hobby of people trying to pick 
you know, different things and the, the sort of science behind this, the gear you carry every day essentially is what it is. Um, now some people get a, a little, a little, what we would consider overboard, uh, and, you know, try to have like everything a matching color or everything, you know, a special boutique, you know, item, like a certain cool flashlight that no one else in the world can own. Um, and you know, that's cool too, if they want to do that, but, uh, I would advise looking heavily into things like that. You know, as you know, being in the military does not necessarily mean you have the best gear. In fact, it almost guarantees that you don't, you know, uh, the military may issue you a multi-tool, but is it really the best one for the job? Is it the one that has the most capabilities and is it all what you need? Usually not, right? So, um, taking, taking the time to examine what you can do better when it comes to your own personal gear, your own personal combat gear, especially if you're in that sort of combat role. If you're not and you're just an intel weenie like us or some other kind of job, that's okay too. Look at the things that you can do in your job and if you are called upon to do your job, uh, in a sort of contingent environment, what kind of things and what kind of gear and what, most importantly, what kind of knowledge are you going to need in order to have the most survivability, right? So look at all of that. Look at everything that's going to increase your survivability and invest in that. And, um, and most of the time it's going to be knowledge rather than gear, but you know, there you go. So knowledge gear for, for your job is going to help you the most. All right, so up next is how relevant is the book 1984 to these times? Very interesting question and one that we get asked all the time. And the answer is uh, very. It is very pertinent. But it is not pertinent in the ways that people think. People think that 1984, well, interesting side note before I get into this, most people actually haven't read 1984. Uh, it is proven time and time again by research studies and polling and all that kind of stuff that the book 1984 is one of those books that has the highest rate of people who say they have read it but actually have never read it. So roughly, based on the numbers that I've seen lately, roughly 75% of all the people that say they have read the book 1984 have never actually read it cover to cover. So that's an interesting note, um, which is very interesting considering the actual content of the book. It's very pertinent. Um, but the get, to getting back to your question, 1984 is a very it's a very good book and is a very apt book for what's going on right now. But not necessarily because George Orwell was some kind of tri time traveling you know wizard right who just predicted the future right. Here's the thing. The book 1984 was written in 1949. George Orwell, when he wrote that book, he was not projecting the future. He was writing about the past. So a lot of things in that book are directly influenced by the Nazis and by their regime as they sort of, you know, took over the world. So you can think of the book 1984 not necessarily as a future predicting book right but it as it is a book written about the past that happens to reflect the future since history oftentimes does repeat itself so that's why we think it's a very important book not necessarily because we can flip through the pages oh look go to you know page 165 oh look this is what's going to happen on Tuesday you know that's not uh, what we're saying, we're saying that it is a very interesting book and a very apt read because it talks about and sort of captures the essence of what some, what someone, what one man was thinking after the war, essentially to end all wars again. <laughs> interesting how that turned out. The Second World War, 
uh, in the aftermath of that, someone looking back and saying, what could have happened differently? And then setting that in the future as a warning to the future. So that's why it's a very pertinent book, and we highly advise people actually read it and not download the Cliff Notes version. Although Cliff Notes uh, got us through college. So, all right, up next, uh, key indicators to watch out for pre civil unrest or escalation to violence. I know this will be area specific, but a general overview. So, this is a good question as well. Uh, we get this kind of a lot, and it, and yes, that's true, it is very area specific. People far more experienced than us have talked about things like how to avoid a riot, and that's where I would advise starting. But generally speaking, you're going to want to avoid any flashpoints. And I know that this is probably going to sort of, I hesitate to use the word offend, but it's it goes contrary to what a lot of our you know followers and listeners sort of believe in. Um, so you, you absolutely don't have to follow this, but the fact of the matter is, is that even though you, you know a human being, no matter where they're at in the world, we think um, has the right to protest nowadays in the year 2020, especially what's going on now. Um, if you go to a protest, if there is a protest planned and you are physically located there, you have to realize that you're assuming a risk. And a lot of people are okay with that risk, right? We are certainly okay with that risk a lot of times. Um, but the, the point is, is that if you're trying to avoid all risk or try to be as risk averse as possible, you find out there's a riot, or not a riot, uh, but a protest in your area that could turn into a riot. If there's a protest in your area, avoid it. That's one of the the, the good things to 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 do if you're trying to avoid sort of civil unrest and, and, and an escalation. Right? It's very rare for a situation to go from zero to sixty, you know, instantly. There are always indicators lining up. There are always uh, situations where you can see it on the wall, like in in this case. Most of the protests we see are planned, right? Like even with when we were talking about the Minneapolis stuff, we saw the indicators on the wall. We saw a high unemployment rate, especially in Minneapolis, in the area in Police District 3 where most of the violence took place. We saw an immediate, uh, essentially, capitulation by the uh, Minneapolis Police Department when they uh, when they essentially when they fired you know those four officers almost immediately upon that video going viral. And then, uh, essentially, the political leadership, the, the 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 police chiefs, the attorney general, the governor, especially the governor, coming out and condemning this action all within a couple of hour period. Uh, that to us, we knew some stuff was going down, and it turned out it was the spark that lit the the, the great bonfire of the summer of violence of 2020. So. Uh, things like that. If you have a very highly politicized police shooting in your area, that is most likely to to um, uh, result in rioting, uh, no matter where you're at, usually. Uh, even if the person has a weapon in their hand and the police officer was quite literally legitimately defending their own life, it does not matter in a lot of these areas. So don't look at a police shooting and say, oh, well, the guy had a gun and was shooting first and, you know, the cop ended up dropping him. Oh, there's not going to be a riot. No, chances are there's probably going to be a riot anyway because it was a police-involved shooting and because people don't understand the details of what happened. They just are immediately uh, emotionally uh, reactive to it. So... Uh, if that sort of thing happens in your area, that is a huge indicator for pre-sort uh, of civil unrest, if you if you will. All right, up next, can you go into some detail on Stingray devices and how to identify and counter their use? 
That's an excellent question as well. And we actually have a whole mini series on uh, mass surveillance, uh, evasion, uh, detection and evasion, I think is the name of it. But yeah, we have uh, over three hours of uh, podcast stuff talking about it. But in short, here's the deal. Uh, with Stingray devices, you're not going to be able to detect them. They do. There's no way that you, uh, with your uh, civilian-capable technology, can detect them. We can't detect them here with what we've got. Uh, however, you can counter their use. And essentially, the answer to this is don't take your cell phone. Now, understandably, a lot of people can't do that, and we certainly can't do that. If we could live without smartphones, we certainly would, but we, we can't, right? As, you know, most Americans can't. Um, so what we do is what we have sort of coined the term whaling, right? And what we do is we put our phones in a Faraday bag, and uh, we carry it around that way. Now, uh, and since we're usually not in needed in an emergency or, you know, something like that where we absolutely need to answer every phone call we get immediately, uh, usually what we're able to do is about once an hour or so take our phone out of the uh, Faraday bag, connect to the internet, connect to the phone grid, get what we need, and then uh, shut it off and put it, get, put it back in the bag. And then we're continuing to walk around throughout our day. When we do this, we limit the time that a, st a potential Stingray device could collect on our device. Now, obviously, when you take out your phone out of the bag, it, you're going to connect to the internet and you're going to connect to the network and you're going to pop up on the on the radar, right? But there's a you're, you're, there's a requirement there. You sort of have to, just like the sort of whale analogy, right? A whale has to breathe air, right? So you have to come up, right? So every now and then a whale comes up for air, but they spend most of their time underwater. So that's exactly what we do. We spend roughly 90% of our time with our phones in our Faraday bags, walking around, doing our daily stuff. And then, you know, every now and then we take our phones out and uh, connect to the grid. That way we're not tracked 90, not that way we're not tracked 100% of the time, we're rather tracked like, I don't know, 2% of the time. So hopefully that helps you get started in the right direction. And if you want more details, uh, go check out our other podcast on that. All right, so up next, a uh, question about the presidential litigation process. How it works, where it's at, and what are the outcomes, and what happens after the outcomes pertaining to current events? So that's a good question, and one that we're not especially experts on. Actually, none of us really know uh, what is going on. Uh, but we can say that we do know this. We do know that as of the recording of this particular answer, um, the president, President Trump, uh, has filed and his people, right? The current administration has filed several, uh, lawsuits regarding irregularities in voting, right? So the president has filed lawsuits in the swing states. Um, I forget which ones exactly, but, uh, he's filed lawsuits to do a few things. Uh, for one is to, uh, ensure that their the the uh, bipartisan observers are adhered to. Uh, another one was for in the Astor Supreme Court injunction to allow them to monitor again. I'm not quite sure about the details on that one. Um, and, and a few other injunctions to stop counting until Republican uh, observers were able to uh, observe. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's sort of the legal process as we understand it right now. I know it's not exactly a clear answer, but once again, we really don't know what's going on. Um, but here's the thing. 
if the courts say, okay, cool, and the counting comes out and it becomes quite obvious that uh, Joe Biden is a winner, then Joe Biden is a winner. The states will uh, certify those results and we'll see where it goes from there. Now, if it comes out and we f find out that just like what we're hearing today is that in Michigan there was one uh, voting machine that was used in one county or like a few voting machines in one county that were accidentally giving Republican votes uh, to the Democrats um, – if that turns out to be true and widespread and it turns out to make a difference uh, and it turns out to actually flip the state of Michigan for Donald Trump and it turns out that that actually means that he wins the election, then he's still president. We'll see how that goes and there will be counter lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, the key things to look out for are as follows. The certification of voting uh, the, the votes, right? So each state is going to certify their votes. So far, I think it's only been Florida that certified their votes as being all counted, all all accounted for, all genuine, all the bad ones weeded out, and we're done counting, essentially. Uh, I think Georgia tried to do the same thing, but they're requesting a recount for Georgia, so I'm not sure how that all works out. But keep an eye on the certification of the ballots because I'm, I guarantee you that's going to get involved in the court system as well. Now, once it becomes clear that there is a winner, we'll see how that goes You know, once again. Um, but it is important to keep in mind that right now, even though as of once again, as of the recording, uh, Joe Biden has declared victory, his running mate has declared victory and all mainstream media, including Fox News, has, has essentially they're calling the race. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that Joe Biden does not decide who wins the election and none of the mainstream media decides who won the election. There are a lot of people in back closets and back rooms uh, counting votes that sort of decide this election. So once that uh, becomes official in the form of certification of ballots, that will be it, right? And then I'm sure there will be countersuits to that as well, even after the ballots are certified. But that's going to be a huge clincher, right, for a huge milestone. Uh, another thing is Inauguration Day. So we've got, uh, what is it, 11 weeks or so, something like that. Might be wrong on that. Um, but we've got a, quite a ways until uh, Inauguration Day in January. And up until that point, Donald Trump is still president, right? And at, if the point comes, well, well, we, we could say what if all day, but what if Joe Biden becomes painfully obviously the winner and Donald Trump refuses to leave, I guess is probably the right term. I can't imagine that actually happening. That's kind of actually unlikely. Um, but what happens if Joe Biden is obviously the winner and, or the vote, or, or even better yet, the voting and the certification of all 50 states is not completed by January 20th, Inauguration Day. Uh, if that happens, then I'm not sure what happens uh, because technically Joe Biden can declare himself victor all day long. But if, you know, I can declare myself president of the United States, but if I'm still declaring myself president of the United States after Inauguration Day, that would mean that a technical state of coup occurs. So if it turns out that the votes are genuine, the, the votes call Donald Trump as being the victor, um, which at this point is actually looking quite unlikely, but if that does happen and Joe Biden 
refuses to accept that on January 21, he, there will be a technical state of coup. And it, depending on how that turns out, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that happens. But yeah, so it's a very complex thing. I wish I had a better answer for this, but this is kind of something that America is grappling with as a nation right now. But I can tell you the certain milestones are, don't get, don't start operating as if Joe Biden is the president because he is calling himself president or president-elect or whatever. Uh, until January 21 or January 20 on Inauguration Day, he's not. So he can say whatever he wants. He can say he's king of Mars for all that, for all that matters. But and if, he st if he is the loser on January 21 and he's still saying he's won, well, then there's technically a state of coup. Likewise, the opposite is, is true as well. If Donald Trump is obviously the loser and that it's quite certified by everybody at the table that he did not win the election and he still is calling himself president after the election then that he would be in a he would be the one causing the state of coup so um, we've never had that before um, we've had something some things similar but nothing quite this with, with the stakes being as high so we're gonna have a special episode on that I hate to say like oh we're gonna have a special episode on it but like honestly we're, we're just waiting right now we're waiting for the votes to be counted uh, so we really don't have a, a huge a, a huge amount of stuff to say it kind of varies our our, uh, our advice varies greatly based on what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, we'll have more on that later for sure though. Alright, so moving on to a slightly different topic. Uh, best burner phone brands and how to acquire. Um, basically, the best burner phone is the one that you can get. Um, the one that you can get without tracing to you. So uh, burner phones, the traditional brands are things like track phone, um, uh, I can't think of any U.S. brands at the, at the moment. All of the brands I can think of are ones of that are overseas. Uh, but uh, yeah, TrackPhone is a good one uh, if you can get your hands on it. Like honestly, I would really just go on eBay and see if you can get a used, unlocked burner phone for like five bucks and see if that uh, see if that'll uh, work for you and then for sim cards that's what you're also going to need as well uh, in a perfect world you would be able to walk into a uh, Walmart or something like that or some kind of grocery store buy a sim card buy a burner phone pay cash for it no one ever knows it was you unless they you know looked you up on the security camera but that's really not a likelihood for people like you know normal people <laughs> um but yeah we have a, a variety of burner phones we've got uh you know, geez we've got pretty much every we've got smartphones we've got like the old candy bar phones um all kinds of stuff flip phones old school razor phones stuff like that really whichever phone you can get your hands on that is unlocked and is able to take a cdma or a gsm chip depending on which country you're in and uh, which one is more common. Um, you can, if you wish, you can uh, invest in like a more robust, like waterproof burner phone, but, and just switch the SIM cards out, which a lot of people are doing because it sounds kind of cool. Uh, we used to do that um, just because we hated buying burner phones over and over and over again, but then uh, we realized that was kind of a huge security risk. So we just tend to to just uh, buy new phones when when they're uh, needed because they're not that expensive. So, really, whatever phone is that, whatever phone you can get that's unlocked is is good. Um, it, depending on what your mission is, you might want to choose a smartphone. You might want to not choose a smartphone. But yeah, that's uh, that's you know, it's really up to you. They they all work really. 
And our final question for today is, would really, really like to know how zero prior service civvies can find reputable intelligence, quote, training, save for YouTube, in quotes here, or in parentheses, uh, probably suspect outside a handful of channels, yeah, accurate, uh, and obviously legit Tom Clancy novels, right? So Tom Clancy, one of my favorite authors of all time, just as a personal note, um, even though a lot of his stuff isn't quite the most accurate, it's still still awesome for fantasy novels and stuff. So this is where we wanted to sort of end on today because we wanted to end every episode with a book recommendation, right? Because reading is crucial and not a whole lot of people out there are reading anymore. So we want to kind of kick that back off with we're going to end every podcast from now on with a good book recommendation on the topic of intelligence or history or self-improvement or something. So there's that. Now, to answer the question specifically, I've got a very long list for you. So let's go here to... The CIA's website. Yes, that's right. The Central Intelligence Agency. Now, as much as we love to hate those guys or hate to love those guys or whatever that relationship is, it's kind of weird, you know. It's complicated. They do have a very good reading list. So if you go to the, if you just Google CIA reading list, you will find uh, their official um, sort of endorsed books. Now it's not a very long list. There's quite a few on here. Um, like one here at the top, one of the more recent works is by Henry A. Crumpton and it's called the art of intelligence lessons from a life in CIA's clandestine service, uh, which is an awesome, awesome book. Um, it's, it's quite good. And another one here towards the bottom of the list is from Steve Cole called ghost wars. The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10th, 2001. And that is a very good book. Um, it's a little dry at times, but that's you're going to have to sort of deal with that, unfortunately, because in the Intel world, we end up reading thousands of pages a week and then uh, are intrigued for about two pages of that. Uh, but these are some pretty good books. Check out the entire list and another good reading list to go for is um, the sort of uh, reading list slash professional development list by the former Secretary of Defense, James Mattis. Saint Mattis, as some would call him. Um, he has a very good reading list. Um, some of us have been forced to read his reading list, and I can tell you that uh, he picked some good ones. So uh, just looking at here on his list, uh, when he was, um, this was back when he was, uh, I think when he was still a Lieutenant General, uh, when he was the head of CENTCOM, uh, he created this reading list, and it's still apt today. Um, a good one is uh, One Bullet Away by Nathaniel Fick, a very common one, also mandatory reading for most officers in the military. Um, it, it's very interesting. It talks about the, uh, the sort of invasion of Iraq uh, the first time. And... Um, Let's see here. Ah, here we go. Another one. Um, Black Hawk Down by Mark Bowden. Uh, that is a very good book. Uh, if you are into, if you like the movie, you will love the book. Even those people who don't like to read will like Black Hawk Down. And really, any book by Mark Bowden is a good shot. Um, and then another one here, which is more, 
a little bit more boring, but it talks a lot about tactics, especially how the Taliban learned um, to whoop ass in the era of the Soviets. Uh, and it's called The Bear Went Over the Mountain, Soviet Combat Tactics in Afghanistan. And it is a very fascinating read. It's perhaps a little bit outdated, but it does show you um, and tell to us, uh, speak specifically about a lot of tactics. So if you're into that one, it's by Lester W. Growl. And it is uh, quite a good book. Now, personally, here we wanted to end on a note of uh, talking about, uh, you know, in ending on the book recommendation. And I know I just gave a bunch, but let me give you one more. And it's one of our favorites here at the S2 Underground Project. It's called Operation Mincemeat How a Dead Man and a Bizarre Plan Fooled the Nazis and Assured an Allied Victory. And this is by Ben McIntyre. And it is probably one of the greatest books on military intelligence during World War II that has ever been written. Um, and I know that's kind of a bold statement, but essentially, this shows from the mind and the eye of an analyst during the war how just the tiniest bit of information, how the lowest level analyst, how the guy who's just, you know, punching away day to day can actually save tens of thousands of lives. So, Hopefully that's a good list for you. Hopefully uh, this whole podcast episode was helpful. Um, we're going to be doing a lot more of these. Um, if we did not get to your question in this episode, we will add it to the list for next time. Um, we aren't sure if this is going to be a long-standing series. We might not get that many questions, honestly, but we're going to set it up like it is. Um, and as such, if you have a sort of emergency question, it's like, hey, I need to know this right now, please don't hesitate to DM it to us uh, and, and ask us there. And we'll, we'll, of course, respond immediately. Um, but if you would like us to answer it on the podcast, like today... Uh, just mention in your DM to us that it's for the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll make sure to put it on the list, and we'll uh, talk about it. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much all we have for today. Um, like I said, hopefully, hope it was helpful. Uh, hope you guys can stay safe out there because we've got some very weird, strange, and probably dangerous times coming up ahead. So make sure you stay safe out there, and we will see you next time. So always remember to find the shade as to actual out.